You can open your Bibles to John 5. John 5. John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The Scripture will be put up on the screen. About 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter. And uh, he wrote a letter to the church in Rome, or to the believers in Rome. And these were Gentile believers. Uh, These were men and women who were immersed in a pagan culture. Pagan, idolatrous, immoral culture. Uh, And these were believers who were immersed in that culture and who were called to be disciples of Christ in the midst of that type of environment. And as Paul wrote to those Gentile Christians, he begins by offering some uh, social commentary. And you say, what does it have to do with John 5? Well, we're going to start Romans 1. We're going to end up in John 5. Paul writes to the Christians in Rome and gives them some social commentary. Maybe a better word for it is not commentary as much as indictment. Because he explains that the Gentiles, these non-Jews, and not having the Jewish scriptures and not having all the privileges of the Jewish people, were still responsible to respond to God. They were still responsible and culpable to respond to the revelation they had and to acknowledge that God exists and ultimately come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Paul indicates in Romans chapter 1 that men the world over are responsible for the rejection of God. In fact, he uses the term, they are without excuse. And so Paul says they've received enough revelation. I mean, just the sun shining and the birds chirping and uh, uh, you look out and see the stars and the orbit of the moon and you just look at creation. You look at the universe at large, uh, you look at life at the cellular level. However you want to consider it, creation screams there's a God. And so Paul says, you're responsible for this revelation. And so I want to read that to you in Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Paul says, for what could be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible creation, uh, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They made idols. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They elevated themselves over God, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Wow, what an upbeat, encouraging church, you're saying. Continue. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is Paul's indictment of the first century pagan culture. 
denying God, denying the clear revelation that God is, and turning inwardly and celebrating their own passions, not only uh, indulging in, in those passions, but then celebrating those uh, who also practice those things. And so maybe you don't come here very often, or maybe you're relatively new, and you're saying, oh, it's one of those churches. But understand my point here. This is an indictment of the first century pagan culture. Yes, it is also an indictment of 21st century Canada, a culture who has everything they need to come to faith in Jesus, but defiantly refuse in favor of their own sin. Although the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, these are those who, in the name of wisdom, uh, claim that their enlightenment has led them to reject God, Meanwhile, they become fools. They claim enlightenment while descending into darkness. They claim advancement while regressing to their basest passions. They claim freedom while being captive to sin. That was true in the first century. It's true now. They not only rebel against God and indulge in their sin, but again, celebrate those who do likewise. In fact, these are those who manufacture an entire cultural zeitgeist that smiles upon sin and rejects God and rejects those who stand for godliness. And so we see an increasing hostility. In fact, one of the current trends is to define any disagreement, any disagreement, as hate. Any disagreement as hate. And so if you happen to hold to a biblical morality which opposes the new morality of the culture, you're hateful. And so that's just a very, very cheap way of demonizing those who disagree, and it's a way ultimately of criminalizing dissent. Because at the same time that we say that all disagreement is hate, we also push for hate laws. Uh, We also push for regulations against hate speech. And all we're doing then is criminalizing those who disagree. That's our culture. Does that disturb you? Does that disturb you? Does that grieve you? Does it sometimes even anger you? How do you feel about the fact that these who have received from God everything they need to fear Him and receive His Son have instead rejected Him in favor of their sin? You and I are rightfully disturbed and grieved by that type of circumstance. We should be saddened by that, by a people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is, however shameful that is, there is a situation which might rival or surpass the godlessness of our culture. Although our godless culture has received all the revelation they need to acknowledge the existence of God, there is another group of people who've received even greater revelation, yet remain unsaved. And I'm going to suggest to you that they're in the church. This helps us to understand when Paul says that the judgment ought to start in the household of God. I'm referring this morning to the religious but lost. There are likely some like that here this morning. These are those who have come in contact with incredible evidence and revelation regarding who God is. These are those who have come face-to-face with the knowledge of how to be saved, yet remain lost. These are those who rub shoulders with genuine believers. These are those who hear God's word preached. These are those who experience the love of God's people. These are those who have tasted the conviction of the Holy Spirit, yet they remain in their sin. If what the culture is doing is sad, this is far more shocking. This morning we're going to look at a passage where Jesus confronts people just like this. Not in a Christian church culture, but in a Jewish culture. But we're going to see serious parallels and even maybe look at some passages that make it clear that the same situation does exist within the church of Jesus Christ. At least within the walls. We're going to see a people who had every religious advantage. We're going to see people who ethnically were descendants of Abraham. Uh, the patriarchs were their fathers. They were beneficiaries of God's covenants. They had received the ministry of the prophets. They were objects of God's promises. They were recipients of the scriptures. And yet, they remain unsaved. 
These are the people through whom came the Messiah, and yet they failed to attain eternal life. This is sad, this is tragic, but it's not an anomaly. Such people still exist today. And again, as we said, even within the church. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to consider from John 5 some clear witnesses to who Jesus is and some of the reasons why they're rejected. We'll see that identifying with a religious class or movement is not the same as being a genuine disciple of Jesus. We're going to see that some who identify themselves as worshipers of God will experience a rude awakening in the end. And so let's read it, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, starting in verse 30. Jesus here is being accused of blasphemy and being accused of disobedience and law-breaking. He's been asserting his own authority and his right to do the things he's been doing, namely healing on the Sabbath. And he says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The, uh, to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Earlier in this passage, as I mentioned, Jesus has been confronted because he dared to heal a man. And he did it on the Sabbath day. And so he's accused of law-breaking. He's accused of blasphemy. He responds to all of this by asserting that he is the Son of God who has been given authority by the Father, and so he has every right to do what he's doing. In fact, when he does something like healing a man on the Sabbath or teaching with authority or cleansing the temple, he's doing exactly what the Father has told him to do because he only does what the Father directs him and only speaks what the Father tells him. And so he speaks as the Father directs him to speak. And he works as the Father directs him to work. But now in our passage, what he's going to do is he's going to offer undeniable witnesses, which confirm that he is who he claims to be. Witnesses whom the Jews have willfully chosen to reject. Now what's very interesting about this passage, if you notice some themes here. Verse 31, you see the idea of bearing witness and testimony. Verse 32, you see bears witness and testimony. In verse 33, born witness. Verse 34, testimony. Verse 36, testimony or bearing witness. You see it all throughout the passage, including the idea of accusations. This whole passage that we just read is really dealing with the terminology of the courtroom. 
It's kind of like a lawsuit. It's kind of like a trial. That's what's happening here. Jesus' accusers have come, and they're putting him on trial. You violated the law. You are a blasphemer. And so what does Jesus do in response to these accusations? He calls witnesses. He calls witnesses. So this is the language of a trial. Jesus' accusers are going to regret this, however. They're going to find by the end of this passage that they've come in accusation against him, saying that he's a lawbreaker. Jesus is going to call his witnesses. His witnesses are not only going to testify to who Jesus is, but the tables are going to be turned, and those very same witnesses are going to end up indicting his accusers, as we're going to see. And so let's look at it. How does Jesus then defend his identity and prove who he is via these witnesses? Look in verse 31. Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In any court system, you know, did you do it? No, I didn't do it. Okay, you're free to go. Doesn't work that way, does it? You can't just testify and say, oh, my testimony alone is enough. The Old Testament was very clear on this. The Jewish law in Deuteronomy 19.15 says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. That's the Jewish law. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying to his Jewish accusers, you've accused me of breaking the law? Okay, let's proceed and let's do it according to the law. And so he's going to call witnesses. And what he's going to do is say, let's see then uh, who is keeping the law and who's breaking the law. And so he calls witnesses. And who does Jesus call as his first witness? Look in verse 32. He says, there's another who bears witness about me. He's saying, it's not just my own testimony about my identity as the Son of God. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Well, who's that? Well, the very next verse, he starts talking about John the Baptist, but that's not who his first witness is. If you drop down to verse 37, it says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His first witness is the Father. God himself has testified that I am his son. And actually, the other witnesses that we're going to look at are those whom the Father has sent to testify to Jesus' identity. Now, this is incredible. This is bold. Jesus' star witness is God the Father. And the reason this is so bold is because his accusers believe that they're operating in accord with God's law. You know, sometimes in a trial, you might have a witness who switches sides, and that could be devastating. They're there for the defense, and then they end up switching over to the prosecution or vice versa. But that's not what's happened here. The fact of the matter is God was never on the side of the accusers, and Jesus said, I'm going to call my first witness, is God. It's shocking. That's bold. The fatal flaw in his accusers' case is that they felt that they were acting as God's emissaries, and they were doing no such thing. So Jesus calls his first witness, it's God. Look in verse, well, no, back it up. Jesus would later say something very similar. In John 8, verse 17, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. I mean, this should have fallen like a bomb. This should have been an incredible wake-up call. These religious people believe they're acting on behalf of God, while in reality they're opposing him. God's on the other team. Whereas they're accusing Jesus of disobeying God, God is testifying that Jesus is his son. Jesus was not disobeying the Father. 
in obeying the Father, Jesus was simply violating their man-made religious rules. Jesus, in obeying the Father, was violating their man-made commandments, those commandments that they were teaching as if it was God's law. They were the guilty ones. They fit Isaiah's indictment that Jared quoted today, or no, that Ryan quoted today. This people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And maybe you're here this morning and you come from some religious background where that's your experience. You have men who have devised rules and commandments and restrictions, and they teach those things with zeal, with religious zeal and passion, and maybe even enforce their man-made rules to a greater degree than they enforce God's own commandments. This is what Jesus is working against in his day. Such people exist in the church even today. Legalists, usurpers, hypocrites, claiming God is on their side, while in reality they're directly opposing salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So, immediately out of the gate, Jesus drops that nuclear bomb on his accusers. I call my first witness God. Now, they're going to argue that point. Sure, they're going to argue that point. But Jesus' case isn't finished yet. What he's going to do now, he's going to cite some other witnesses. And uh, witnesses not just to his identity as the Son of God, but witnesses to the fact that his accusers have received all the evidence that they should need to believe, but in actuality are in willful rebellion against God. And so each of these following witnesses now flow from God's witness. These are those whom the Father has provided. So let's look at them. The first witness that Jesus now cites, in addition to the Father, flowing out of the Father's testimony, is the greatest prophet, John the Baptist. And so Jesus is saying, the Father has testified that I am his son through the greatest prophet, verse 33. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. That's John the Baptist. The Apostle John said in chapter 1 of this book, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He's saying John the Baptist actually was sent by God. God is saying, I'm going to testify to the identity of my son, and I'm going to send the greatest prophet, John the Baptist, and he's going to testify. So what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? Remember, many weeks ago, He testified that Jesus was the promised deliverer from Isaiah 40. John testified that Jesus was the worthy one whose sandal, John said, I'm unworthy to untie. John testified that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John testified that Jesus preexisted him. He's the one who came before me, he said, though John was older than Jesus. John testified that Jesus was the Spirit-filled one who was going to baptize others with the Holy Spirit. John testified that Jesus was the messianic bridegroom who is going to supply new life for his people. Chapter 1, verse 34, we read that John testified plainly, I have seen and borne witness that Jesus is the Son of God. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, testified to the identity of Jesus. Verse 34, Jesus says, or 35, Jesus says of John, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The reason why this is such a damning witness for Jesus to call is the fact that the Jews for a time were willing to listen to John. The Bible says at one point in John's ministry, everybody was flocking to him. Even religious leaders were coming to John. And Jesus says, you are willing to hear John for a while. 
He says he was a burning and shining lamp. Now, Jesus is the light, but John is a lamp. And you take a lamp, you take it to the source of the light, you light that lamp, and the lamp burns, but eventually it burns out. And that's John. John came as that burning and shining lamp, and they are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. These fickle hypocrites. It's more like a fad, more like a trend. We're all going to go after John, but then John begins to point to Jesus as the Messiah, and now we're done with John. And so Jesus cites John as a witness. Not only was John a superb witness to the identity of Jesus, but he's a witness whose testimony Jesus' detractors had clearly heard and entertained for a time. And so this ends up being damning or condemning of Jesus' accusers. John's testimony of Jesus as the authoritative Son of God sent by the Father not only proves that Jesus is not guilty of working contrary to God's law, but proves that Jesus' accusers are guilty of willful rejection of God's clear testimony regarding his Son. The tables are beginning to turn. So, is John Jesus' greatest witness? No. As great as John was, John was just a man. And so look in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. And so Jesus then moves on to an even greater witness. And so look in verse 36. You're going to see that the, uh, Jesus is now asserting that the Father has testified that he is the Son of God through his own messianic works, his works. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so, maybe you're willing to deny the testimony of John. After all, hey, scandal, Jesus and John were cousins. Maybe you're going to reject John's testimony on that basis. Well, okay, you're going to reject the testimony of John? Well, there's something you cannot reject, something absolutely undeniable. Jesus has an independent witness. Believe in me for the works' sake. The works which Jesus performed were undeniable evidence that he was the promised Messiah. He worked miracles. John records seven miracles for us in the gospel. Turning of the water into wine, the healing of the nobleman's dying son, the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool, that's this context, walking on water, feeding of the 5,000, the granting of sight to the blind, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, John then ends his gospel by saying that he did many more things that are not recorded in this gospel or any of the other gospels. Jesus performed miracles, and those miracles defied explanation other than the fact that he was exercising divine power as the Son of God. These miracles were capped off with his own resurrection and his post-resurrection appearances. And then the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the granting of the ability to perform those Christ-like miracles by the apostles which lent that credibility to the church. His miraculous works testify to who he is. On multiple occasions, Jesus, this is interesting to me, multiple occasions, Jesus would say, listen, if you're not going to believe my words, look at the works. Look at the works. You can't deny the works. John 10, 36, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. John 17, 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus' miracles testify 
as an unassailable witness to his identity. And all that witnessed those miracles, frankly, were culpable. They are responsible. You've received incredible revelation. I mean, have you ever gone through this time in your life where you're saying, show me a sign. Show me a sign. Lord, just do something. Show me a sign. And you think, what a privilege that would be if you just show me a sign, then I would believe. Well, that's not how God operates in this age. But you know what he did in the first century? He gave him a sign. He gave him sign after sign after sign after sign. And guess what? Guess how man's sinful heart responds to signs? They become hardened and calloused. I'm going to show you how they dealt with the signs in a minute. But the fact of the matter is, because he did the signs, they were culpable. They had revelation, yet their sinful hearts still led them to rebel. John 15, 24, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, then they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. The fact that Jesus did the miracles really brought to the surface and magnified the reality that these are sinful rebels. Had he not done the works, it wouldn't have been so clear. But he's done the works, and it's clear, and they're culpable, they're responsible. So, Jesus now cites his works as a witness, and just like John the Baptist and just like God the Father, these witnesses not only confirm the identity of Jesus, but now they also condemn and indict his accusers for their rejection. But notice, Jesus' works were a witness to who he was, not just because they're miraculous, but because they're messianic. And that is the Old Testament looks forward to the promised one, the Christ, the deliverer, the Savior. And it speaks to what types of works he would be doing. And what does it say? Well, remember when John the Baptist had his own doubts and he sent some folks to Jesus to ask, are you the one or do we wait for another? And Jesus responds and says, go tell John this. Go tell him what you see. And this is how Jesus characterized his own ministry. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He appeals to his miracles, but then he also says what? The poor have the good news preached to them. The Old Testament characterizes the Messiah as one who's going to come and care for the poor. He's going to care for the downtrodden. He's going to care for the outcast. And that, frankly, is one of the bases upon which the Jewish leaders rejected him. He goes after sinners. He eats meals with sinners, and they rejected him on that basis. But in reality, that was the evidence that he was the promised Messiah, because that's the character predicted by the Old Testament prophets. And so, believe the works. Why? Because they're miraculous. Believe the works because they are messianic. And so, though they claimed to be waiting for the Messiah, they ended up resenting him. They ended up rejecting him. Why? He's going to allow a prostitute to come and to worship him? Doesn't he know who this person is? He's going to go to the tax collector's house and have a meal with him. Doesn't he know what kind of person that is? And so the hypocritical religious class rejects Jesus. And really, ultimately, they're rejecting him because he's doing the works of the Messiah. So how, do they, how, did, how did the early Jews deal with Jesus' miracles? We said they're undeniable. Well, how did they deal with them then? Well, first of all, they tried to deny them. You weren't really born blind Right? Remember that situation? In John chapter 9, they start grilling the blind man's parents. Tell us whether your son was born blind. And they're trying to deny that the miracle took place. So they tried to deny the miracles. Then when that didn't work, they said, okay, a miracle has happened. But you know what? He's doing it by the power of Satan. And so in John, uh, Matthew chapter 12, they ascribe to Jesus the power of Satan, and he's casting out demons by the power of demons. Okay, can't deny the miracle, so we'll just say it's satanic. 
Well, when denying the miracles didn't work and when ascribing this uh, power to Satan didn't work, you know, you do the ne- ne- next natural thing and you say, well, let's just kill him. The remarkable thing that even carried over into Lazarus. He raises Lazarus from the dead and the way they deal with this undeniable evidence of the power of Jesus. A dead man who's now walking around, they say, oh, we're going to kill him too. That's how they dealt with the undeniable testimony or witness of Jesus' miracles. And you know what? They're culpable for the rejection because the witness was clear. To reject Jesus after witnessing his miracles and messianic works was an act of out-and-out rebellion. It's clear evidence that the one rejecting had no desire for God at all. And Jesus drives that home in verse 37. Look at it. He says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. He's saying, God's my chief witness. He's on my side in this whole thing. And listen, you don't know anything about him. You've never heard his voice. The Old Testament says Moses heard his voice, but he said, you haven't heard his voice. You haven't seen his form. The Bible says that Jacob stood face to face with God, but you don't know. You haven't seen him. You haven't heard him. He says, you don't have his word abiding in you. You look in the Old Testament, every genuine believer in the Old Testament, especially the psalmist, you say that they hid God's word in their heart. God's word was abiding in them. They were led by God's word. They're convicted by God's word. They allowed God's word to change their values and their priorities and their worldview. His word was abiding in their hearts. And he says, that's not you. You don't know who God is. You've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. His word doesn't abide in you. You have nothing to do with the God of heaven. You're not in any way to think of yourselves as the people of God, because you're not. That's what he's saying. He's saying you have no relationship with the Father. You exhibit none of the characteristics of a lover of God. And what, according to Jesus, would be the obvious evidence that one is a lover of God? Look at verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. And so Jesus, again, is establishing the evidence of a love for the Creator God. The evidence of a love for the God of the Scripture, for the God of heaven, is what? You'll receive Jesus. You'll receive Jesus. A genuine lover of God and a student of Scripture would respond to the witnesses of Jesus' identity with faith. If one wants to honor the Father, they'll honor the Son, as we've already seen. And this same is true today. There's plenty of people who claim a belief in God, but their God is some obscure, vague notion, invention of their own mind. And they love that God, which is the God, again, of their own creation, which is simply an idol. But if they really did love the God of Scripture, they would also love His Son, because the God of Scripture testifies that eternal life is in my Son. A genuine follower of Jesus recognizes his works as incontrovertible evidence that he is the Son of God and worthy to be followed according to the Father's testimony. Well, Jesus is not done with his witnesses yet. And you say, isn't this enough? Like, they're dead already, Jesus, right? I mean, this is severe. He's turned the tables on them, and he now is indicting them. But he's not done yet. He adds one more massively important witness. What he does is he testifies that the Father has proven that He is His Son through the inspired Scriptures, through the inspired Scriptures. Now, this is an incredible witness, and again, condemning and indicting of His accusers because the Jewish religious leadership did know the Scriptures. 
It was not abiding in them in the sense that they were submitted to it with meekness and allowing it to shape their worldview and their values and their priorities according to God's will and leading them to the Messiah, but they did know what it said. They studied the scripture. In John 5, verse 39, look at it. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you have, may have eternal life. You search the scriptures. Now, what a warning. What a warning. Like I've seen your Instagram, right? I know when you read your Bible. Actually, I don't. I'm not on Instagram. But uh, reading your Bible, studying scripture, is that the evidence that you're a believer? Potentially. But not necessarily. Knowing doctrine, knowing theology, is that the conclusive proof that one is a believer? Not necessarily. The Jewish leadership understood the Scriptures, they studied the Scriptures, they memorized the Scriptures, they meditated upon the Scriptures, they recited the Scriptures, yet Jesus is saying, you search the Scriptures and you still don't have eternal life. They've completely missed the point. There's men and women today also claim to be Christians who spend time in the Word of God but I've also missed the point. Jesus, after the resurrection, appeared to his disciples, and uh, he says in, John, uh, says in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, in explaining the resurrection and everything that was happening after the crucifixion and so on, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and so on. He helps his disciples to look into the Old Testament scriptures and say, Everything that's transpired, my earthly ministry and my rejection and the crucifixion and my resurrection, and now the birth of the church, it's all predicted in the Old Testament prophets, and he helped them to see it in the Word of God. Many Jews did understand that. Right? We're talking about, when we're talking about this group that's accusing Jesus, we're talking about these religious elites who are hypocrites. We're, we're talking about these uh, who were imposing a religious system upon the people, and Jesus comes against those religious leaders because of their hypocrisy. That's what we're talking about. But there was a faithful remnant of Jews. Those who understood the Old Testament scriptures, they knew that it pointed to Messiah. So when Jesus came, they said, this is it. This is who we've been waiting for, and they followed Jesus. There's a reason why after Pentecost, thousands of Jews became believers. Every one of those converts in Acts chapter 2 was a Jew. So we understand there's a Jewish remnant that actually did understand the Old Testament Scriptures, but not these who are accusing Jesus. So what an incredible warning this is. There are those who call themselves Christians, but frankly, they've concocted an idea of God that's born more out of their mind than out of Scripture. There are some who have distorted the Word of God so that they can have a picture of God more to their liking, whether it be by downplaying some elements of God's character or overemphasizing elements, other elements of God's character or just editing the Scriptures, whatever it may be. Anything other than a biblically faithful understanding of God, frankly, is an idol. These Jews prided themselves on being disciples of Moses and of his writings, but Jesus has simply exposed them. This is just religious show. They completely missed the fact that the Scriptures pointed to Jesus and served as a witness to his identity. So, has Jesus done yet? No. Look at verse 45. 
the barrage continues. He says in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses. Wow. Elsewhere, when the Jews come to Jesus and they want to accuse him, or, or, or they're talking to some who claim to be disciples of Jesus, and they pridefully say, you're his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. Are you? Jesus says, not only are you not disciples of Moses, but the day is going to come when Moses is going to testify against you. There was some Jewish tradition that had arisen that believed that because Moses in the Old Testament at times interceded for God's people, that Moses now in heaven has an ongoing ministry of intercession for uh, the Jews, which is not true, but that was the tradition. And whether these Jews believe that or not, I don't know. But what Jesus is saying, not only is Moses, not only are you not a disciple of Moses, and not only is Moses not interceding for you, but Moses is actually going to accuse you. Moses, upon whom you've set your hope. In what sense? How is he going to testify against them? Well, Jesus says in verse 46, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses is going to testify against them in that the writings of Moses pointed to Jesus. You think you're a follower of Moses? Well, look what he wrote. He was pointing towards me. And they're culpable for that witness, responsible to respond to it. Moses foretold the coming Messiah. He gave enough revelation concerning the Savior that those who received that testimony uh, were responsible for the rejection. And so those who came to accuse Jesus are now what? They're now the accused. They're now the accused. If they truly believed Moses, then they would have believed in Jesus. The fact that they had refused Jesus reveals that they really did not understand Moses. They really did not understand the Scriptures. They could not legitimately claim to be his disciples. Instead of placing their hope in the one to whom Moses and the law pointed, they simply placed their hope in the law, right? I mean, that's kind of like looking at a sign. I mean, the old analogy is this, right? You take your family. I don't know if this is John Stott or somebody like this said this, but uh, you're taking your family to go on a picnic, and uh, you see the sign pointing to the park where the picnic is. And instead of following the sign and going to the park, you just stop by the sign and set up your picnic under the sign. That's like those that look to the Old Testament law and say, you know what? I'm putting all my faith and trust in Moses and the law. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand. Moses was pointing towards me. If you're going to treat Moses and receive him as God intended him to be received, then you're going to look at the direction to which he's pointing, and you're going to follow that direction. And where are you going to end up? You're going to end up with me. So in conclusion, despite all of their religious privilege, these men did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Despite the fact that they had received God's special revelation, clearly pointing to the Messiah who had come, they did not believe that he was the Son of God. Despite rubbing shoulders with genuine believers and being part of a religious community, they did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They refused to accept the Father's testimony about Jesus They ultimately rejected John the Baptist. They were hardened towards Jesus' miracles. They were blinded to the true meaning of the Scriptures. Although claiming to be God's people, they were unbelieving rebels who would never inherit eternal life. Why? Jesus gives gives us a reason. Look in verse 39. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is you can't. What's the problem here? His accusers were people-pleasing hypocrites. They loved receiving glory from people. They loved accolades. They loved affirmations. They loved acceptance by man more than they loved God. And as I said a little bit earlier, this is coming into focus for us more and more as believers, as our culture is becoming more hostile to God. Now there is a greater cost attached to becoming a disciple of Jesus so that just by holding to Christ and his values, you and I may be called haters. That's going to be a problem if some people love affirmation and accolades and the acceptance of men. So these people, had their life decisions were, were, were driven by what they valued, and what they valued was glory from people. They loved being celebrated by others, even if it meant disobeying God. They loved the feeling of being affirmed by people, and so they forfeited the acceptance that comes only through Jesus. It's as if Jesus is saying in our text, you are not God's people. You are fickle hypocrites who love praise and acceptance from your fellow man more than the glory which comes from God. It's as if Jesus is saying, your refusal to come to me lies in the fact that to come to me does not result in glory from people, but potential rejection. Self-exaltation is your God. Coming to me threatens that God. You'd rather follow someone like you, who's also a self-exalter. Someone who comes in their own name. Someone who also receives glory from people. And so far be it from us this morning to read Scripture just so that we can focus upon the faults of those other people. How about us this morning? Have you received the Father's testimony concerning His Son? This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's the Father's testimony. What we're not asking this morning is whether or not you're involved in religious activity. What we're not asking this morning is whether or not you're a member of a church. It would be shocking for some of you who are in my membership class. What we're not asking this morning is whether or not you even know the Scriptures. We're not even asking whether or not you believe in God. What we're asking is, do you believe all that the Father has testified concerning His Son? That is, have you believed in Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus and Jesus alone as the source of eternal life to the exclusion of any self-effort, self-righteousness, or personal goodness? Are you a follower of Jesus who honors Him as the one granted all authority over men, including authority over your own personal life? Do you love Jesus supremely? so that you're willing to follow him, even if it means sacrificing the glory or acceptance that you might receive from others, whether it be those closest to you or whether it be the culture at large. These are essential questions, even for a group like this this morning. Why? Because just like there was potential for the self-deceived individuals who attached themselves to the Jewish religious community, so there's potential for the same thing, attaching themselves to the Christian community. Jesus warned about this in Matthew 7. This is the last passage we're going to look at. We're going to be done. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, speaking of coming judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff in the name of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I don't know who you are. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, Jesus says, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. These are those who not only love Jesus, but have built their lives upon his word. So this morning, have you believed in Jesus? Are you living as his obedient disciple? Or are you one who has simply attached yourself to the church of Jesus Christ without genuine faith? This morning, trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Give your life to him. Continue as his disciple. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and for the clear witness. Lord, the evidence of Christ and his identity is unassailable. The witnesses are unassailable. You've provided everything that we need, though it is a common refrain to ask for special revelation, to ask for a sign, to ask for something. Beyond what you've already given, Lord, we know clearly that you have given everything we need. You have given all the revelation you're going to give, uh, and uh, that evidence is enough. That evidence renders us all responsible and culpable for our uh, lack of faith or our rejection of Jesus. And so we pray that you would impress that upon the hearts of individuals this morning. Pray your Holy Spirit would help them to see in in the face of Christ uh, your own glory that they'll recognize Jesus as the Son of God, and that they give their lives to Him as Savior and Lord. So, Lord, we pray that you would then help us as those who are followers of Christ to live in such a way where the genuineness of our faith is abundantly clear. But We don't want this morning our genuine believers to be doubting their faith, uh, but we recognize that as we falter and fail in our sanctification, as we're not availing ourselves to your means, that uh, sometimes those doubts creep in because... The clear evidence of your Holy Spirit's presence is not, uh, is not there. So uh, if there's any like that this morning who are genuine believers but are struggling in the faith, uh, maybe they're doubting because they don't see a lot of fruit in their life, we pray that you just reinvigorate them and help them to, to uh, focus again on your means for growth and help us be an encouragement. And then lastly, Lord, again, we just pray for unbelievers this morning. Uh, pray that they know that we love them. Help us to show the love of Christ to, to these. Uh, we don't in any way want to create a culture where it's us versus them, the church versus the world, uh, but instead help us to show the love of Jesus to all, recognizing that we're all sinners. And uh, so, Lord, uh, help us to show love. And then, Lord, we pray for those who may be here who haven't believed in Christ, that they'll sense the love of Jesus for them, that they'll recognize that Jesus died upon the cross to atone for their sin. And I pray that they trust him and him alone for salvation. Lord, we thank you for this. Pray that you would help us to live for you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.